Thanks, Nick. Good morning to you. It's good to be here. I hope you have already been encouraged by just some really good singing and, and good songs. I know that uh, it was really encouraging uh, to me. Thank you, Dave, uh, for, uh, for leading and uh, giving us an opportunity to lift up our voices. Uh, my name is Brooke Taylor, and uh, I know most of you in here, not all of you. Uh, and as Nick said, I was the assistant pastor here at New Village Church uh, many years ago now. And it's a joy to be back here in a place that, uh, that I, I call home and, and consider to be uh, my home. And so it's a pleasure to be here. Um, since 2013, as Nick said, I've been the pastor of uh, Missio Church in Ridge. Um, and my wife and family couldn't be here today, but I, I brought a couple of photos and I just wanted to introduce them to you in case you didn't know who they are. My wife Marlene and I, there we go, have uh, been married um, uh, almost uh, 20, uh, 22 years this year. We have three biological daughters. You probably can pick which ones are the biological ones. Um, my oldest is a sophomore in college at Bellhaven University, and um, I have a, a junior in high school uh, whose name is, uh, she's Miranda, then my junior high school is Marin, and my uh, freshman in high school is Audrey. We've also fostered uh, eight children since 2012, um, and one of which was a 10-month-old little girl. She had special needs. She's legally blind, legally deaf, um, spends most of her time in a wheelchair, doesn't walk. Um, and uh, a couple, two years ago, we actually adopted her this coming month. Um, and now she's almost six years old. And we are currently fostering a little guy. Um, and uh, he, uh, we've had him since birth. We picked him up out of Stony Brook um, NICU. And uh, he's been with us for the last two years. We're hoping to adopt him soon as well. So we're uh, a growing, uh, diverse, fun family. So I uh, hope you uh, get a chance at some point to meet them as well. Thank you, the elders, for inviting me here today. Again, it's a privilege to be with you. And I love to talk about God's word. I love to talk about the gospel and just to encourage followers of Christ. You know, this morning um, as I was leaving, um, I should have ironed my shirt. I didn't. Um, but I don't know if you ever thought about it, but an ironing board makes absolutely no sense. I brought one here for us just to show you what I mean, but this makes no sense. Um, you, there is a real scrawny little surfboard-looking thing on the top, right? You've all seen one. Some of you have never seen one. But then you put two scrawny, thin legs, right? The center of gravity is just all out of balance there. And then to top it all off, you put a steaming, hot, blunt object on it, right? On top of it. And then you take the cord and you stretch it across the room to wherever you can find to plug it in as a tripping hazard to, to kill or maim people that pass by, right? I mean, the, the person who designed that thing had absolutely no idea what they were doing. It's a wonder that a family resource center hasn't taken the ironing board along with yard darts and straws, right, and just gotten rid of it. And some of you probably are realizing today it's the most unsafe thing in your house. You're probably going to go home today and throw yours away, and, and you should, definitely. I mean, who needs an ironing board, right? It doesn't make sense. The whole thing just is a, is a mess. And when you think and you look at the, the life of a church, Life of the church sometimes doesn't make sense either, does it? I mean, it's a mess. Not just your church, but any church. I mean, why would God put a group of sinful, selfish people 
with differing views on life and priorities and politics and even the Bible and put you all together in one place called the church and ask you to get along. Well, why is it that, that so many of us, even in a church like this, we all have different views about why the church should be here, why it exists, what it should do, what it should accomplish, right? Some of us think a church should be all about worship, and we need to have the best music with the best songs, the ones that we love, so that we can feel like we have come and met with God. And others of us think, no, no, the church should be all about teaching, and we need a real eloquent pastor who can get up and who can tell us things of the, of the Bible so that we can feel like we heard from God today. And some of us go, no, no, it's, it's all about fellowship. It's all about hanging out with people and having a place to be and have a knitting club and talk about God and feel like we are at least around some semblance of what God must be like. And if you read books and authors, both Christian and non-Christian, they all have differing views about this as well. You have the purpose-driven model, the Willow Creek model, the seeker-sensitive model, the simple church model, a high church, a contemporary church. Some even want to make the church more relevant, which is kind of a bizarre, arrogant thing to say. Like, who thinks that God needs to be more relevant? I mean, isn't God, by the very nature that he is God, relevant? He needs us, as his PR people, to make him more relevant in the world? He can't do that on his own? Most churches have no idea what they're doing at all. So they take every little bit of philosophy, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, they throw it all together like a potpourri and hope something comes out on the other side that makes a little bit of sense, that has a little bit of success that will grow our church. And we aren't even sure what success is. The people have told us that success in a church is more people. And some have said, no, no, success in a church is bigger budgets from those people. Another thing, no, no, real success is when all those people are happy. They're content. More people, more money, more happy people. Is that what God wants? Is, ha is it having a church that we like? A church that meets all of our needs, that satisfies all of our longings? So if our church sings our favorite songs and teaches what we want and chooses our favorite carpet color, then we are really, really happy. And, and if they don't, then we are out of here. We become nothing more than consumers. We want it our way or the highway. And so we built the church in our own image rather than in God's image. And if we get really frustrated, we just simply say, I don't need the church and any of these Christians at all. I'll just go home and just have me and my Bible and I'll just know Jesus and that's all I need. If we take a step back and we look at the mess and all the confusion and we start to wonder, what is God doing? Because none of it makes sense. And I wonder, what if God wants more for us than coming to feel blessed, than a Sunday Christianity, than checking a box that says, I'm here, I did it, now I can go home. What, what if he wants us to be part of something bigger than the status quo? What if he wants us to be part of something that is eternal and something that is cosmic? You know, if, if New Village Church is going to make sense of any of this, 
and become what God wants you to become, then you have to go back into Scripture and start to understand what it is that God has said. Because in his sovereignty, God has already told us everything that he wants us to know about the life of the church. Everything we need to know. He's told us what he is doing and how he is doing it and why he is doing it. If we just take a few minutes and look. And what we'll discover is that God's plan and God's way of doing things is very different than the way that we like to do it. If you brought a Bible, I hope you did, would you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. And would you stand with me as I read for us God's word? And I want you to remember that the words that we hear have the same weight and authority because they've been given by the inspiration of the Spirit of God to us as if Jesus was standing here and reading them himself. They're his words. And this is what he says. Therefore, remember... That at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom all the whole structure is being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for loving us and giving us your one and only Son, that we might be your people for your purposes, and for your glory. Humble us by your word to see where we might have erred. Convict us by your spirit to follow your leading rather than our own intuition and motivate us to live for more than what this world and sometimes what our churches offer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So there's three things I want you to see this morning. The first thing is I want to answer the question, what is God doing? And Paul writes largely to a Gentile church here in Ephesians to remind them of something that they are, very, that they are prone to forget, something that's very important. And he says, don't forget this. Never forget. And if you remember, that was our saying after 9-11, right? That, that we printed it on bumper stickers and hats and t-shirts and we wore it everywhere because we didn't want to forget what had happened to us. And the reason that we th- said that is because why? Because we are prone to forget. I mean, some of you have a hard time remembering very obvious things like your wife's anniversary. You have a hard time remembering birthdays of people that you love. I mean, I have a hard time remembering my kids' names sometimes. There's so many of them. They just keep coming. There's more and more every day, it seems like. I don't even know who they are sometimes. We are prone to forget. 
And so Paul, after telling them the gospel in chapters 1 and 2, he tells them, I don't want you to forget where you came from. He says, you were separated from Christ. That means that we, as Gentiles, we had no promise of the Messiah. We had no remedy for sin. We were hopeless. Everything that was talked about in the Old Testament had nothing to do with us because we weren't part of the nation. He says we are excluded from Israel. That doesn't seem like a big deal to most of us because most of us don't want to be Jewish. We don't want to give up bacon. And so to not be part of Israel doesn't seem like a big deal. But to not be Jewish, to not be part of Israel, meant that we were not God's people. And he says we were strangers to the covenants of promise. We had no written word. We had no proof about God. We had no communication from God. We had no documentation. We had no claim of the promises, no covenant, no sacrifices, no priests, no temple. We had none of that. And so because of that, we have no hope. No contingency plan. We're objects of wrath. We are ignorant. We are destined for judgment. And Paul says, just to top it all off, we have no God. We know that there's a God out there somewhere by looking at creation, but it's insufficient evidence to tell us about who he is and what he's like and what he's done and who Jesus is. The idols we worship can't save us, and so we're hopeless. That's who we were. That's where we came from. And Paul wants us to see the gap. He wants us to see who we we used to be outside of Christ. He wants us to see how far away we were. That the best that we could hope for as Gentiles was to be like Cornelius, a proselyte to Judaism who could not enter the temple, who could only come into the outer courts, who couldn't come close. We as Americans, we don't feel that gap. We don't feel the gap because we think that we're a Christian nation. We think that we're on the good side in Scripture. I don't know if you read Scripture recently, but we're not on the good side. David, Abraham, Moses, those are not our people. They're Jews. We're Gentiles. We're the Philistines and the Amalekites and Goliath. We're the outsiders. And that's bad news because those people are the enemies of God. That's who we were. And we don't like to hear this, but Paul says, I want you to hear it, and I want you to remember it, and I don't want you to forget it. Remember the gap. And then he gives one of the most important words in all of Scripture. He says, but. But, 2,000 years ago, in an unexpected way, God intervenes into history. He comes to rescue people, not just his people, not just the Jews, but Gentiles, people from every tribe and tongue and nation. He rescues them through the cross of Jesus Christ. And the gospel has changed everything for us, not only future, but it's changed everything about where we came from. Jesus fills the gap for us. He brings us near. We get to participate now with God because of Jesus. We were outsiders looking in, but now we are insiders. We were far away, but now we get to come close. We were enemies, but Paul says we're now at peace. That is an amazing transformation because it's something that only God could do for us. We could not do it on our own. Apart from him, we were hopeless, but because of Jesus, we now have access. There was a dividing wall between us and Israel and hostility is broken down through Jesus and he says he's making one man out of two. 
one of my daughters, Audrey and I, we love Calvin and Hobbes. One of my favorites is when Calvin's dad is teaching him math, basic math for a preschooler, and Calvin doesn't get it. And so his dad puts four pennies on the table, and he says, see, Calvin, there are four pennies, one, two, three, four. Calvin goes, I got it. He goes, okay, good. Take, take pennies out of your pocket. And so Calvin puts six pennies on the table. And the dad goes, hey, Calvin, how many pennies do I have now? He goes, you got four. He goes, no, no, no Calvin, you, you count them up. There were four, there were six. How many pennies do I have now? He goes, you have four. And the dad's getting frustrated. He goes, no, Calvin, you don't understand. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. There are ten pennies. He goes, no, you have four. Six of those are mine. And, and when we think about how God is working, he says here that he's going to take one person and another person and make one new person. We always think one plus one equals two. But in God's economy, one plus one equals one. He's taking Jews and Gentiles and he's bringing them together through peace, through Jesus, and making them one new people. That seems entirely new to us. But the Old Testament spoke about this. It said that God was going to save people from every tribe. It talks about the saving people from Egypt and Babylon and the Philistines. It talks about saving people of all the nations. It shouldn't have been new, but it was. They weren't expecting it. And God says now he has one new people, not developed by nationality, but from every tribe and tongue and nation. A new man. And he says, those new people come together and now they both have access to God through Jesus Christ. He creates one new people, his church, his family. It's his idea. You know, some of you have been a member of this church for a long time. Maybe you're related to some of the people that started this church. Maybe your grandfather built this building. And you might be prone to think that it is your church it's not your church you give money and you donate bibles and you construct things in this building and you install pews and you pay for a sound system and you might think that it is all yours and that you get to decide how it is used and when it is finished and when we get rid of it and when we replace it but it's not it's not yours if you think it's yours, then you should keep it and you should take it home so it can be yours. The church does not belong to members. It doesn't belong to elders and deacons. It doesn't even belong to your pastor. The pastor does not own it. He doesn't set the agenda. The buck doesn't stop with him. Jesus is your senior pastor. This is God's church. It was his idea. He created it. It belongs to him. It's his stuff. It's his building. It's his resources. The church doesn't belong to any of you to possess or dictate or direct. It is God's church. And if you're going to, not, if you're going to understand what God wants, you're going to have to start asking God, what do you want? And then seek that and pursue that and own it because it's his. But you know, also, some of you don't prioritize the church. Family comes first. Work comes first. Football comes first. And so you, you fit the church in whenever you have time. I have nothing better to do at 10.30 on a Sunday morning, so sure, I'll come today. But man, if something better comes up, that's where I am. Because God created this, this is his plan for you. There is no better place for you to be than in the life of a church. 
This is not an add-on to your life. Jesus died to bring you into fellowship with His people into a church. Jesus prioritizes it. He loves it. He gave Himself up for it. Not the building, but the people. This is God's priority. Is it your priority? Are you giving yourself up for it? Are you loving it? Are you prioritizing it? That's what God is doing. How is He doing it? Well, look at verse 17. He says that we are no longer strangers and aliens, but now we are fellow citizens. We are part of God's kingdom. We are part of his family and household, he says. We have a family tree, and we don't look like any of the people in the tree because the family tree is not created by blood or DNA. It's created through Jesus. Galatians chapter 3 says if you have faith in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, he says you are an offspring of Abraham. You've been grafted in. Just like we grafted faith in. She's a full member of our family with all the rights and privileges and inheritance, which is nothing, by the way, that comes with it. She's a full participant. And when you come to faith in Christ, you are part of the family. And not only that, God says He is constructing you into a building. He is building you up into something. The foundation is the prophets and the apostles, and the cornerstone is is Jesus. And He says, you and I are little stones that we are being crafted into this building, built one on top of another. And what's He building us into? Paul says he's building us into the temple of God. He's building you into his dwelling place. Now, now we see all that list and we go, okay, that's great. Let's move on to the spiritual armor. Let's move on to something more important. We don't see and understand the magnitude of what Paul is saying. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation is all about God dwelling with people. Genesis chapter 1, God dwells with Adam and Eve in the garden. Exodus chapter 32, 31 and 32 and 33 and going beyond. It's all about God, what? Dwelling with the people in the tabernacle. Chronicles, it's all about God, what? Dwelling with the people in the Solomon's temple. If you go to the end of the book of Revelation, it's all about what? God coming down to earth and dwelling with his people. That's what the whole Bible's about. And then you come to John chapter 1, and John says that the temple of God is now in Jesus, that he is the walking embodiment of the presence of God among people. And here, Paul says, we are the temple. God now dwells in us. Doesn't that just blow you away? We collectively and individually are the temple of God. Literally, the language is structured that it is the holy of holies. You are that. That That's both awe-inspiring and overwhelming and frightening at the same time. You can understand why there's so much division in the early church. Because when Jew and Gentiles get together and the Jew goes, look at the temple of God. And the Gentiles go, we are the temple of God. He goes, you can't be the temple of God. You are unclean. You, you eat pigs. You, you hang out with people that are unclean. You can't be that. That's exactly what God says they are. Because they are the temple. And what happens with the temple? That means that people have access. We don't have to become Jewish to have access to God. 
Moses said in Numbers chapter 11 that he longed for the day when all of God's people, all men and women, would have the Spirit of God. Joel chapter 2 talks about a day when everybody will have the Spirit of God. Why? Because everybody will be the temple of God. God's temple will be everywhere. And that is happening through Jesus. See what God is doing? He's building one new man out of two and transforming us into his dwelling place, into his temple. I talk to people all the time that they expect some future end-time temple one day to be reconstructed in Jerusalem. But as I read the Bible, I see a lot talked about a reconstructed temple, and it was reconstructed in 30 B.C. But God constantly talks about how he is one day building a temple that is not constructed by human hands, that is not constructed by bricks and mortar, and that is made up of flesh and blood because it is made up of us. That's not just a theological concept. That's not something to debate over. This has implications in us every day for living. If we collectively and individually are God's temple, then temple things must take place in us. Evidence is that we are part of God's household. And if we're not growing in these things, if we are not becoming and practicing our templehood, does it matter if we come to church? Does it matter if we sing songs? Does it matter if we read our Bible? If we're not becoming what God wants us to become? Everything that went on in the Old Testament temple now goes on in us. And the beauty of the New Covenant temple is that in the Old Covenant, the temple was in one place and it was all come here, come to Jerusalem, come to the temple, come see God, come hear God. And the New Testament, what does Jesus say? He says, I want you to go. And it's not a verb of go, to go, it's a participle, which means in your going. So wherever you go, make disciples of all nations. Why? Because the temple is now mobile. The temple has wheels. The temple is on the move. And wherever you go, the temple goes. And wherever you go, God goes. So what does that mean for us? Number one, it means that you have mandatory access to God. You're the temple. That means you have a personal, intimate pursuit of God that must take place every day in you through prayer and through his word. You don't need a priest to commune with God. You don't need a pastor or a church to tell you what God says. Your pastor is not your priest. Jesus is. Don't allow someone else to broker your relationship with God. You don't need anybody else. You come to God directly through Jesus on your own and commune with him and know him and pursue him and speak to him and hear from him every single day. But that also means you don't have to go to a place. You don't have to come here to commune with God. People come to my church every once in a while, they, they knock on the door, and they go, Pastor, can I come in and pray? I want you to pray for me because I know that God's here and God will hear me. And I always have to tell them, I'd love to pray for you, but God is not here because this is a holy building. This isn't a holy building. God doesn't dwell here. This is not a sanctuary. You are the sanctuary. You are the dwelling place of God. This is just a place, and when you all leave, God leaves. Because he is in you, and he wants you to have access to him every single day. Second, if you're the temple, that means that you are being transformed by God to be the temple. 
The temple in the Old Testament was set apart. It was sanctified for God's holy use. And the same is true for you. You have been set apart for God's use in this world to know God personally. And as you do, transformation happens in three critical areas that are important for discipleship. One is that you begin to display Christ's attributes. The fruit of the Spirit. As you pursue to know God, you become more like God. And so you display love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. It permeates from you because you're his temple. You demonstrate in your life the power, the life-saving power of the gospel. The more that you are connected to Christ, the more that his life overtakes you. The more that you are built up into his image. Second, because you're the temple, not only are you to display God's attributes, you are to steward all of your life for his glory. In the temple, the, the, the basin, the table, the altar, the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant, it was all set apart for what? For God's use. It was sanctified for God's purposes. And now because you are the temple, that means your whole life has been set apart for God's use. There is no part of your life that the gospel does not infiltrate and invade. You can't say, well, no, this is my spiritual life and this is my work life. You can't say, no, no, this is my home life and this is my church life. The, the, you are the temple, so everything you do is worship. Your work is worship. You're, you're staying at home and taking care of kids is worship. How you take care of your body is worship. What you put into it is worship. How you steward everything that you have is worship. That's why Paul says, right, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. Why? Because you're a temple. All of your life, not just Sunday, not just singing, every day is worship. And you're to steward your life and your resources and your money and your house and your car and your computer. Everything is to be stewarded for God's glory because you're His temple. Present your body as a living sacrifice. That's temple terms. There is nothing off limits to God. You are His temple. Steward everything for Him. And thirdly, you are to engage spiritual gifts in the temple. God gives you gifts to use for His purposes. He talks about in Ephesians 4 to build up the church, to expand the influence of the church. And so while God is building one church, He does it all through all of us, exercising our responsibilities and our gifts for His glory. Not just the deacons, not just the elders, not just the pastor, not just Dave. Everybody, all of Christ's people, the church, are supposed to be engaged in doing priestly things. You're being transformed. And then finally, he says that you are part of a family. As part of the temple, you're part of a family. I recently watched Dear Evan Hansen in New York City on Broadway with my daughters. And it was fascinating, that the show, which is all about the, the, these, these teenagers that seem to have no place to fit in. Nobody cares about them. Nobody knows about them. If they fell in a forest, no one would even know. And they sing this song, the highlight, the, the pinnacle in the middle of the show, you will be found. That there's a longing for people to be found by people. There's a longing for us to have community and communion with people. There's a longing to be part of something. 
And God, through Jesus Christ, has brought you into a community, into a family, into a people. And he says, this is your place. These are your kind of people. Well, you go, well, they won't, they're not my kind of people. They don't look like me and talk to me. They're your kind of people now. Because God brings you together with them and says, these are your people, learn to love them. These are your people, learn to serve them. You see, you exist not simply for yourself. You exist for the glory of God and you exist for the benefit of other people. We have a t-shirt that says at our our church for our children's ministry, it says on the back of the t-shirt, it is not about me. And we need to be reminded of that because sometimes we come to church and we think it's all about us. Well, I don't like that. I don't like this. I don't like her. The music's too loud. The music's too soft. The lighting's too dull. It's too bright. It's too hot. It's too cold. As if, as if everything should revolve around us. But God says, you're not here because of you. You are here because of everybody else. You see, when, when God puts you together in a building, he puts you together with real rocks, and he doesn't put perfect rocks together in the building, does he? I mean, who does that? In the ancient, I mean, we do it now. In ancient times, you didn't. You just grab the first rock, you find, okay, I'm going to jam it into my building. Well, you don't smooth the rock out. You put it there, and then you put another rock on top, and you put another rock on top, and eventually what happens is the rocks start to move and shift and rub each other, and the, ru- the rough edges go away, and they fit perfectly together into a building. That's exactly what God's doing with you. None of you are perfect rocks. He grabs you in all of your deficiency and he jams you into this building and he says, guess what? You are going to move with all the other rocks. You're going to rub other rocks and you're going to help rub out sin in them and they're going to help rub out sin in you and you're going to help rub in Jesus into them and they're going to help rub out Jesus out into you. You need rub. You need people. You can't become what God wants you to be on your own. Problem is we don't like rub. Like we hate rub. We don't like people rubbing us. We don't like people talking to us and holding us accountable. So we avoid it. And we try to be a Christian on our own. We try to walk the Christian life all by ourselves. I'll, I'll be super spiritual. I'll read my Bible at home. I'll, I'll sing. I'll, I'll pray. But when I come to church, I'm sitting in the back. I'm going to be by myself. I don't want anyone within 10 feet of me. And as soon as the service is over, I'm out of here. Why? Because we, want, we don't want the rub. God says, no, 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 you exist for the transformation of these people. It's not about you. You exist to make these people more like Christ, and they exist to make you more like Christ. Others are to benefit from your presence. You are a gift of God to them. And they are God's gift to you. And together, we cooperate and we become what God wants us to be. Even when we use our spiritual gifts, the spiritual gifts are not for ourselves. We don't use spiritual gifts and go, yeah, I love how this makes me feel. I'm important. I'm up front. No, God gives us gifts to what? Glorify Him and build up the body. He doesn't say anything about making you, making you feel good. He says, I give you gifts to build up the body of Christ. And so if you don't use your gifts, if you don't serve other people, if you sit on the sidelines and say, I'm too busy, I'm too tired, I'm too retired, you're not fulfilling your function and the whole church hurts. The call of the gospel is to die to yourself. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, Christians, secure everything, keep yourself safe, make sure you're number one. I mean, Paula White says that, but she's a heretic. The Bible says, die to self 
and what? Become a servant of all. Do you put the others first? Are you dying to yourself? You know, one of the things I think that would be really helpful here to help you learn to die to self. And I can say this, I've been here. I've served here. I've sat in this room. I, I think one of the best things that you could do is to take out all of these pews and to replace them with chairs and to learn to sit with the people that are here. This room sits 400. And you can all have your own little private kingdoms and dominions separated from each other. But if you only had 80 chairs in here, you have to sit next to people. You have to learn to get to know people, learn to like people, learn to love people. And not only that, that allows everybody to participate. Because if you guys all come together and then next week you go downstairs, you go have a lunch downstairs, some people can't go. Somebody in a wheelchair. My daughter spends all of her time in a wheelchair. She couldn't go downstairs. She could never eat with you. Someone who can't walk, who can't navigate the stairs, who does not want to sit in that chairlift, goes, I can't go downstairs. If you wanted to put other people first, you would do everything on this main level so everybody can come to everything because it's not about you. It's about them. And finally, about this whole issue, Jesus takes down walls. And sometimes you like to reconstruct walls where God's already taken them down. And you reconstruct walls with a lack of forgiveness and a lack of love and a lack of kindness. Don't rebuild what God has taken down. Don't rebuild what God, through Jesus, has deconstructed. Bring people together by learning to love the people in this room and forgive the people in this room and serve the people in this room because they are your people. Lastly, why is God doing this? Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, I'm a prisoner of Christ on behalf of the Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight in the mystery of Christ. He says, what's the mystery of Christ? The mystery of Christ is the Gentiles or fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promises of Christ. He says, the mystery is the church. God's doing something. And then he says, because we are fellow heirs, because we are partakers of the promises, because we are part of God's work in Jesus, we are here, in verse 8, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus in whom we have boldness and access through our faith in him. Why is God doing this? He has one purpose. Why does God have a church? One purpose, to bring to light for everyone, every man, woman, and child, how you can be saved through Jesus Christ. That's why you exist. You don't have another purpose. If you existed for worship, then God would be smarter to take you straight to heaven where you can worship perfectly because that's what you can do in heaven. If you existed simply for fellowship, then God would be better off to take you to heaven where you can have perfect fellowship in that place with him forever. But you exist for the one thing that you don't do in heaven. Make known Christ. That's why you exist. 
Dwight Smith says, the day that you hire a new pastor, he is thinking about you. But God wants him to think about them through you. But because he's thinking all about you, he doesn't think about them. And if he's not thinking about them, he doesn't get you to think about them. And if he can't get you to think about them, sooner or later, it's all about us. The church is not about you. The church is about us being disciples, ambassadors who are making known the gospel to the people around us. And he has one instrument for how he's going to do this. One instrument for this purpose, and it's the church. Government is not the substitute for the church. Parachurch organizations, as good as they are, are not the substitute for the church. Missionaries and supporting them is not a substitute for the church. The instrument is not pastors, it is not deacons, it is not elders, it is not evangelists. The instrument is you. You're the instrument. God put you in Lake Grove in 1815 by his sovereign design to reach these people, this community, with the gospel. You are accountable to God for this area, for this zip code, to make known the gospel in this place. Every street, every neighborhood, every school, every business, there is no other instrument to carry out that task. It is only you. Your mission is not to bring people to church necessarily, although you should invite them. Your mission is to go. To go and to tell. To take God's presence and to penetrate this village with the gospel. Your workplace with the gospel. Your neighborhood with the gospel. Your high school with the gospel. Your grocery store with the gospel. That is your mission field. To share God's story of redemption. The genius of God, the beauty of what God is doing is not in the ability of the church to gather. That's not beautiful. The genius is the ability of us to scatter into sovereign places of influence that God had preordained before the creation of the world. To bring God's presence into every corner of 11755. That's your mission. And if you don't want to fulfill that mission, then you should heed the words of Malachi chapter 3. Or, I'm sorry, Malachi chapter 1. Close the doors. If you don't want to accomplish that mission, then sell the church to a developer and go home. Because that is why you exist, to fulfill that destiny. And there's one outcome. The outcome is the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Individually and collectively, you are revealing the beauty of God's grace. You're a walking billboard of God's sovereignty. You're a walking billboard of God's love. All of your diversity, all of your uniqueness, all of your differences. When most people think of the church, they think of strife. They think of bitterness. They think of selfishness. They think of hate. And to some degree, they're right. But your church is to be an evidence of the power of Jesus Christ over sin and cosmic forces. You proclaim to other people, do you want to see what torn down walls look like? Do you want to see the death of hostility? Do you want to see the kingdom of God? Do you want to see true love? Do you want to see real forgiveness? Do you want to see a real family? Then come to my church and see what God is doing. And there's one audience that God is doing all this for. And believe it or not, it's not for you. 
He says it's for the powers and angels and principalities in the heavens. God is showing them what his ministry of grace looks like through you. There is no definition of grace in heaven. When an angel says, God, what's grace? God goes, that's grace. Look at that. You are being displayed for powers to see for eternity. This goes on forever. That's your destiny. Some of you are not part of the destiny because you're not part of the, of the body of Christ. You're still separated from, from God because of your sin. Maybe you're trying to earn your way through religious work. Maybe you're trying to bridge the gap of sin on your own. There is only one way to be reconciled to God through the perfect life lived by Jesus Christ. He lived and died for you a sufficient life and a sufficient death for your sins and he invites you to trust in Jesus. To be found in Jesus. To ask him to have mercy on you, a sinner, and he will hear you and he will save you and he will do something you would never believe. You see what God is doing? You see how he's doing it? Do you see why? we are so important. The church is not a program. It's not a building. It's called out people of the world who follow Jesus in a relationship with God, transformed by his glory and for the benefit of other people. We exist to equip saints for the work of ministry, for the world to know Jesus Christ. The church exists for mission, to proclaim to the world what God has done. Because whatever God is going to do, he is not going to do through pastors and elders and deacons. He is going to do through all of his people, the church. And success, success is when the whole church is engaged in God's mission. It's strangely amazing. The church, really. It doesn't make sense to the world. It appears to be foolishness. But it is the manifold wisdom of God making us his temple, his dwelling place as he transforms us for his glory to reach other sinners who desperately need to know what Jesus Christ has done for them in his life and his death and his resurrection. That's not foolishness. And if we're listening, it isn't really all that confusing. It's the gospel. And it's good news. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you for your word and we thank you that you've shown your grace to us and saved us from our sins and mercifully brought us to yourself and we pray that you would continue to transform this church into your image and the people in it. May they realize that it is not about them. It is your church. It is your mission. It is your purpose and that you love this zip code. You love this community. May they love it like you do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.